broadcasting from the heart of Babylon in Southern California. This is the Campus Church Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Thurl. This is episode 22, Persecution Welcome, everybody, to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. This is Keith Darrell and the Campus Church Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. And I was able to do a little open-air preaching in Southern California on uh, Saturday night. It went okay. Um, It's kind of funny when Christians want to help the cause, and they just kind of hurt the cause. There's a fiery uh, Middle Easterner trying to help me out, and he's basically running off (laughs) any would be potential good conversation to have. And then he wanted to coach me up on what I needed to do. He did tell me he was going to buy me an amplification system. So uh, we do have that going for us. Um, But uh, today we're going to look at uh, the issue of uh, persecution of pluralism. Uh, A couple weeks ago I said we're going to get into the issue of pluralism, and we're definitely going to do that, how we kind of deal with the rhetoric of pluralism when we're sitting down and having a discussion with somebody, because inevitably the exclusivity of Christianity is going to be deemed hateful, bigoted, um, arrogant, and things like that. So you have to learn to give an apologetic for that and kind of, at the very least, while you're having a discussion, get the ball at midfield. So what I want to do today is uh, two things. One, I want to discuss uh, persecution. Um, uh, I thought about it a little bit after reading A.W. Tozer's The Old Cross and the New last week. And if you didn't listen to that episode, well, obviously, please go back and listen to the episode. Uh, but also, you can just Google A.W. Tozer, The Old Cross and the New, and listen to uh, or read that article because I think it's pretty uh, pertinent uh, to modern-day evangelism. And over the past week or so, I've been spending a lot of time with Francis Schaeffer, and he really is uh, a wonderful evangelist and apologist, and he does most things right. He's the cure to compromise as well as to uh, kind of just kind of a brash and a harshness. So if you're prone to uh, being very harsh, I recommend reading uh, Francis Schaeffer, uh, but also if you are prone to compromise, uh, read Francis Schaeffer. And what got me thinking about this, uh, to be a little more explicit, um, I was reading some of out of his uh, Christian view of philosophy and culture, and he was be, uh, speaking about Dylan Thomas. And it was this paragraph that I thought was really excellent and kind of helped me kind of just kind of step back, collect my thoughts regarding how do I evangelize, how do I interact with people? Because going back a number of years ago, when I first started open-air preaching back in uh, like 2000, uh, when I was at the Covenant Seminary, I'd go out once a week usually to the University of Missouri and preach, and uh, very often I was pretty, I was probably much more fiery in my preaching back then, especially if somebody who was a Christian opposed me, I would uh, be pretty quick with them, pretty harsh with them, uh, thinking that what they needed was to be rebuked, and they did in many ways need to be rebuked. What I've discovered more and more, though, is that our churches are doing a horrible job teaching young men, and young men particularly, all they need uh, more often than not is just a little bit of encouragement and information. And so uh, if you approach the situation with a little more compassion, a little more grace, uh, what I've discovered is what they need is to be taught, not necessarily rebuked. And so it's kind of like more of a, a coach that you, you look at the situation and they just don't know what they're doing and they need to be coached on how to do it more so than a stiff decade rebellion. And so here's what he says in uh, regarding Dylan Thomas. He says, in the Festival Hall in London, in one of the higher galleries in the rear corridor, there is a bronze of Dylan Thomas. Anyone who can look at it without compassion is dead. There he faces you with a cigarette at the side of his mouth. The very cigarette hung in despair. It is not good enough to take a man like this or any of the others and smash them as though we have no responsibility for them. This is sensitivity crying out in darkness. 
but it is not mere emotion. The problem is not on this level at all. These men were not producing an art for art's sake or emotion for emotion's sake. These things are a strong message coming out of their own worldview. And uh, I, I think oftentimes when we get into apologetics, and especially if you're into open-air preaching, uh, the idea is to smash other people. There are plenty of uh, biblical texts, you know, God's word is the hammer that shatters the rock. And uh, my point is that I think oftentimes, uh, particularly in the context of open-air preaching, uh, there's often a very much a lack of compassion uh, that when we hear the madness uh, that is coming out of uh, students' mouths or people's on the streets' mouths, it's easy just to think, God, oh, they're depraved and wicked, which is true. Um, but we need to have compassion and love uh, for these people. And even on Saturday night when I was preaching, uh, there was a man from the a gang, a biker gang, the Mongols, um, who kind of threatened me for a little bit. I thought he was going to kind of beat, maybe beat me up. And at the end of the day, he just needed compassion. He uh, did confess to having been molested as a boy, and obviously that, that is still shaped him uh, to this day. And so he needed to be met with compassion more so than rebuke and, or even fists. I don't think I could have taken him anyway, but uh, he, uh, he kind of wanted to squabble. And fortunately, there were a couple people with me, and one guy even comes up and says, hey, I have your back. So um, anyway, point being, uh, read Francis Schaeffer, grow for, uh, in your compassion uh, for the lost, and as well as even the madness that comes out of their mouth and the despair oftentimes that they articulate, uh, that we get to bring life into that situation, that we serve the living God, and as serving the living God, we get to bring life into that situation. Um, so Schaeffer got, and got me into that. And the other thing that uh, from Francis Schaeffer that I've been thinking more about is in uh, his Escape from Reason, he says this, if we were to communicate the Christian faith effectively, uh, therefore we must know and understand the thought forms of our own generation. These will differ slightly from place to place and more so from nation to nation. Nevertheless, there are characteristics of an age such as ours, which are the same wherever we happen to be. It is these that I am especially considering in this book, and the object of this is far from being merely to satisfy intellectual curiosity. And that's, I even think, one of the other important things as people get to apologetics, um, especially more the when I went to Covenant Seminary, there was a trend to like just want to be intellectually stimulated and act like you're really thoughtful and stuff like that. And there's, you know, you want to be thoughtful, but it's, we're not out here for mere intellectual curiosity. Um, but Schaefer goes on to say, as we go along, it will become clear how far-reaching are the practical consequences of a proper understanding of these movements of thought. And so what I want to accomplish tonight, uh, discuss briefly persecution, and then I want to lay the, kind of the, very broadly the, the groundwork of pluralism of where we're at in our culture, more so than the straight-up apologetic a aspect of it, to try to situate us in the context of pluralism. And there is a small appeal from a Christian standpoint to it, um, but ultimately it's uh, dissatisfying and misdirected. And so, first of all, uh, dealing with the issue of persecution, um, I heard a sermon yesterday. I was in church yesterday, and they spoke about persecution. And uh, one of the things I think we often miss um, and even especially being an open-air preacher, people will say something to me about, you know, we just want to be persecuted for the cross. And uh, in a way, nobody in all of history cares that a Jew was crucified 2,000 years ago. In of itself, nobody, like, yeah, some Jews may have thought it was cursed 2,000 years ago, but nobody really thinks it's that big of a deal. And so uh, what I want to look at, I'm going to steal a couple clips from Francis Schaeffer's uh, How Then Shall We Live?, uh, because I think he articulates well why they're being persecuted. And he says it wasn't because they worshiped Jesus. Um, the Roman Empire was a, a pluralistic society, similar to our own. Uh, it allowed other religions to flourish and have their uh, religious meetings and stuff like that. So why did they clamp down on Christianity? What was it? Was it just they ran around and said Jesus lived in their heart or that a Jew was crucified? No. Um, it, it was in many ways, it was a practical outworking of 
uh, Christianity and the gospel uh, that they had the most problem with. And so I want to look at that from Francis Schaeffer before getting into pluralism on our own. Let us not forget why the Christians were killed. They were not killed because they worshiped Jesus. At that time, many religions were practiced in the Roman world. Some were called the mystery religions. Here, for example, we can see one of the initiatory rites practiced by one of these religions depicted in this Roman house in Pompeii. Nobody cared who worshiped whom, as long as the unity of the state was maintained centered in the worship of the emperor. The Christians were killed because they were rebels. We may express the nature of this rebellion in two ways, both of which are true. We can say they worship Jesus as God, and they worship the personal, infinite God only. This worshiping of the one God only, Caesar could not tolerate. It was counted as treason. This became a special threat to the unity of the state based on emperor worship during the reign of Diocletian in the third century, when people of the higher classes began to become Christians in larger numbers. The second thing, however, is something that we're apt to forget, and that is that they really did believe <clears throat> that the Old Testament and the revelation in Christ and the growing New Testament, it was growing then, of course, say the first century, was God who had spoken and that God had given truth. And as such, they were not caught in the flux of the uh, relativistic Roman world because it really was relativistic, much like our own day. So there you have it there uh, from Francis Schaeffer, the two reasons he lays out for why the early church was persecuted. Um, one, uh, they would not bow a knee to Caesar. So in their worship of Jesus, it wasn't just that they believed that Jesus died for the sins of the world and that God freely justified the wicked, um, but in their repentance and faith to him and belief in his kingdom, they pledged their allegiance to him, and they would not bow a knee to uh, the civil religion. Uh, Caesar would have allowed pluralism. He allowed the Jews to exist. He allowed... Um, and that was part of the persecution once the uh, Jews started kicking the Christians out of the synagogue, didn't have that protection. So the Roman Empire was pluralistic, and they were willing to have uh, mystery religions, Judaism, even strands of Christianity to exist as long as the Christians kept it peaceful with the civil religion. And in a similar fashion, uh, which I'm going to brush on tonight, is that pluralism in our context uh, allows you to exist, allows you to worship as long as you don't challenge uh, democracy's power, as long as you don't challenge the Constitution, as long as you don't challenge humanism, uh, they will allow you to exist. It's the minute you step up and say, nope, our allegiance is to Jesus and Jesus alone, we will not bow a knee, that that's when we'll begin to see uh, the suffering and the persecution. And it's going to be subtle. It's not going to be, uh, again, it's not going to be because of Jesus, per se. Um, it's going to be like the early church was accused of hating humanity, and we're going to be accused of hating humanity. Uh, they're going to accuse us of hating homosexuals. They're going to accuse us of being racist and misogynist and things like that. And so there has to be a moral pretext for why they're doing it and why it's for the good of our culture and society. So uh, reason number one uh, that he lays out there is that they would not bow a knee uh to Caesar in their worship of Jesus. They pledge their allegiance to him. And the second reason, as he lays out there, is that the early church was not caught in the flux and relativism of the Roman Empire, and we as Christians ought not to be caught in the flux and relativism of the American Empire. And as America sinks lower and lower and becomes more, quote-unquote, post-Christian, um, the relativism and the call for humanism and basically civil good um, 
is going to increase and we're, our persecution from there is going to increase as well because we will uh, be pledging our allegiance to Jesus and we will say, nope, there is truth and not all is flux, but there is uh, a God. He has spoken through his prophets in the last days. He's spoken by his son and we are giving our allegiance to him. And so that brings us to modern pluralism in our current context. And there are really basically two things I want to look at of our, going back to the Schaefer quote that we have to understand uh, thought forms of where we're at. So everybody listening to this, I assume, is probably American. Maybe we've got a couple internationals. Um, but even if you're international, you're probably English-speaking, which means that you've been influenced in some way, shape, or form uh, by the Western Enlightenment and particularly the philosophy of John Locke. And um, it, it's a little bit beyond the purview of this uh, podcast. But the more I get into John Locke, uh, the less excited I am about John Locke. I remember back in the day when I f- was first converted to Christianity and I kind of became a good American and good constitutionalist and I began to be like reading the Founding Fathers and um, reading John Locke. I thought, yeah, this is where it's at. But the more I read Locke and his letter of toleration, uh, he was basically opening up the door um, for what we currently have as tolerance and pluralism. And in its historical context, there's a certain level in which it makes sense because if you're coming out of Christendom and you're starting to get a, a certain fracturing of Protestant religions and different Christian groups uh, living together, um, how do we all get along to kind of steal a line from Rodney King? Uh, there's a certain strand of uh, appropriate tolerance. So even as Christians, we believe in a strand of pluralism. We believe that Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians should all be able to live together. If you're a Catholic, you may not uh, have the same outlook, but as uh, Protestants, we we have some level of pluralism that we're willing to accept um, in our context, and even you know, depending on how you want to tease out things, uh, things like baptism, we might be able to uh, open up to having different understandings. Uh, we're definitely open up to uh, things like Romans chapter 14 and food and drink and stuff like that, allowing a diversity of views on these things and things that we would call adiaphora. So as Christians, we are definitely pluralist. The challenge becomes, like in the Roman Empire, um, what is going to be the overarching narrative that holds a culture together? Because this is the place where America is currently fractured. We no longer have an overarching meta narrative. And as you bring in uh, Islam and you give us the rise of paganism and even strands of Satanism and just secularism and Christianity, um, you know, we can throw a little coexist bumper sticker, but um, you know, the old whose justice, whose law whose way of life, the transgender's view, the homosexual view, whose view on marriage, the Christian view, um, because then even on something like that, the nature of including homosexual, homosexual marriage um, in fact fails to recognize the exclusivity of uh, the Christian view of marriage. And so there's a very real sense in which we can't all get along at the same table and hang out and act like um, you know these views are all equal. And so kind of tying into the idea of Locke, um, kind of briefly, I want to read from the letter of toleration. Uh, here's what he says. Um, and it's the sort of thing that would have been, you know, readily acceptable into, uh, the Roman empire. Now, obviously they had Caesar worship there, but ours is, uh, may not be Caesar, but it's definitely a humanistic and, uh, kind of a democratic worship, the worship of democracy, thinking that will bring peace. And so, um, I think this is the sort of thing that may have been able to, uh, be written in the first century. And so here's John Locke, He says, the sum of all we drive at is uh, that every man may enjoy the same rights that are granted to others. Thus, if solemn assemblies, observations of festivals, public worship be permitted to any one sort of professors, all these things ought to be permitted to the Presbyterian, Independents, Anabaptists, Arminians, Quakers, and others with the same liberty. Nay, if we may openly speak the truth... 
the truth, and as becomes one man to another, neither pagan nor Mohammedans nor Jews ought to be excluded from the civil rights of the commonwealth because of the religion. Um, now, Locke would uh, like not allow atheists because he, he thought that basically atheism was a universal acid and um, they had no anchor for obedience basically to any contracts and vows they would make. And so he thought that, uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't tolerate atheists. Um, and even in other letters, he would suggest we shouldn't be able to tolerate Catholics. And there's a philosopher named Karl Popper, who wrote an article called The Paradox of Tolerance, and it's basically the humanists wrestle with it too, you know, do, do we tolerate the Nazis? And so every society must tolerate some people and be intolerant of others, and where do we draw those circles and where do we draw those lines? And my point is this, that in the context of John Locke, um, at least where it's been taken, um, giving him the benefit of the doubt that he was trying to work with uh, predominantly a Protestant culture, um, and pluralism kind of works in a predominantly con uh, do uh predominantly Protestant culture, it doesn't work when you bring in the Mohammedans and you bring in the Jews and you bring in the pagans and when Satanists want to set up displays in Florida and elsewhere at courts, uh, uh, at the local court house because, well, Christians have it, um, then, you know, what do we do? Do we speak out against that or we just say, oh, that's the nature of pluralism? Or do we say, no, Jesus is Lord and everybody owes their allegiance to him? And I think that's where the rub begins to get in and something that we can you know, kind of work out in a conversation of how we do those things. Because I do believe that even from a Christian standpoint, there are a myriad of ways to address uh, that issue. But fundamentally, my, my point is this, that I think the nature of what Locke set up, and I came across a uh, quote earlier that I thought um, that was quite good. And th this idea kind of, uh, even a little bit, depending on, you might hear the term cultural Marxism now and then. And so the, you know, the, there are some who suggest that basically Antonio Gramsci kind of had this idea that uh, the uh, Marxist revolution would not take hold in the West because of religion. So what we need to do is kind of uh, change the narrative of the culture and change the culture and kind of, um, it was a later philosopher who came up with the idea of a long march through the institutions. But the ba basic idea is this, that... Um, you need to destroy the West from within and kind of undermine the religion and the values and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I think that kind of goes back to Marx and, uh, or to Locke. And here's, um, uh, I, I think, pretty good idea uh, of, of it in this quote I came across. It says, but Locke saw rightly that there was a cheaper, less bloody way c compared to Marx. Marx called for the revolution. Locke thought there was a, a cheaper and less bloody way and more effective way to achieve a similar end. And so rather than to eliminate religion, Locke devised a way to change it so radically and dramatically that it would cease to be a hindrance to the political regime he envisaged. Um, the key was not to persecute Christianity to death, but to tolerate it into irrelevance. And um, that's kind of, I would say, the trajectory of where our culture is headed, is that it is tolerating us into irrelevance and kind of marginalizing us. And we've all kind of accepted in very broad terms this narrative that, yeah, we need to be tolerant, we need to be, and we should be respectful. But um, what we end up meaning by that is we think that religion and Christianity is largely a private affair and not the conflict between Caesar and Jesus, or not, not the conflict between Jesus and democracy, or the church and America. And I would say in many ways, that's the place where everybody's going to lose their minds. So in very broad terms, uh, kind of putting us in our uh, setting of pluralism, we have uh, political pluralism giving us from John Locke, where we're basically under this idea of tolerance and that everybody should be allowed into the public arena. And the minute somebody puts their head up higher, and Christians say, nope, we're true, we're going to be called Christian supremacists in that 
context, we're immediately going to be asked, are you saying that Christianity should be privileged in a culture? And so that's where we're going to get pushback from when we say Jesus is Lord in a public sense of the term rather than just a private religious sense of the term. And the fact that we have religion so private now, I think, uh, points in the direction of the victory of uh, John Locke. And then kind of intertwined, and I'm not going to spend tons of time with this, uh, the basically the postmodern condition is that um, all we have is pluralism in reality, and there is no coherence to anything that's going on in the world, and everything is purely contingent. And so if that's the case, um, you know, all is interpretation, and, you know, all at bottom, you know, going down to the very bottom of the cosmos is pure contingency, and so everything is just pluralistic, and, uh, you know, how can we bring all the diversity of the world together? And in many ways, I can respect that from uh, the postmodernists, from a created standpoint, if there was no God holding all things together, as Colossians 1 tells us that Christ coheres all things or holds all things together, if we didn't have that, we would be lost in an absolute flux and uh, even kind of tied into some of the quotes from Schaefer and even the despair of um, Dylan Thomas. Um, I would be despairing if I did not have Jesus Christ, who's the light of the world, and the Lagos, who holds all things together. And so we need to keep that in mind, that we have a gospel to preach to people who are wrestling with real issues, that we've been ruptured by sin, and we're absolutely confused, and we're darkened in our understanding. And so we're seeking to reason with people to bring the light of the gospel to them, and that it's actually Jesus uh, that gives us the world and the culture that we want, that it's not a social contract, but it's baptism into Christ that gives us a community of love and grace, that we have unflinching laws um, in, in the character of God, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, and those sorts of things. Um, and yet we have infinite grace to be offered to people. And what our culture in many ways, I think, is hoping for in the idea of tolerance is a form of grace. Um, and we think it's going to be gracious, gracious if we just tolerate one another. Um, but what we want to maintain is no grace comes in the context of law and transcendence, and it's there that grace comes in and steps in. So um, we're going to develop how we articulate those ideas a bit more to people who are going to end up, when we you know begin to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, they're going to call us arrogant, and they're going to call us proud, and those sorts of things. And next week, um, what I'm going to seek to do is show you, give you the rhetoric of how you sit down at a table with somebody, and at the very least, new to the field, and show why their pluralism is actually exclusivistic, um, intolerant, and those sorts of things. And uh, we can get there. And then from there, we got asked the question, what's truth? And we have an answer to that. They don't. Um, so that's this episode of the Campus Preacher Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to contact me, Keith, at CampusPreacher.com or on the Twitter, Campus Evangel. And uh, yeah, feel free to contact me. Lord bless you. Keep you up. Bye. Hoping I hope that he might see it grow. Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom. He runs on his way. There's no time to be going slow.